When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People say, where do you get your ideas from? And I mean, it, it seems to me to be the most absurd of questions because ideas are everywhere. You pick up a newspaper. It's not the big stories about the war in Gaza. It's not the stories about what Donald Trump's been up to. But it's those little three-paragraph throwaways that make you go, what? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, TK Dutess. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, I am so excited to be back with you. I've been waiting all week to learn about who you were chatting with today. So who did we hear at the top of the show there? So that Scottish accent belonged to mystery writer Val McDermott. And why did you want to speak to her? So I've been reading her books for a long time. Her first one came out in 1987. She's been producing really high quality work ever since. And I've been reading along. And one of the things I really like about her books is that her characters change over time. In her most recent book, which is called Past Lying, it features her cold case cop, Karen Peary. And Karen has just gone through the ringer over the course of the seven books she's appeared in. She's changed. The other characters in the books have changed. And I like that. And I wanted to talk to Val about how she does it, why she does it. Before she turned to writing books, Val was a journalist who worked for uh, British tabloids. And she's also now two books into a series about a journalist who writes for one of those papers. So she's a big deal in Britain. She's sold more than 19 million books worldwide, according to uh, the cover of her most recent one. But she's a working class Scot who cares about working class Scots. I guess, in short, she's just somebody I really admire. So I was glad to have a chance to talk to her. Wow. She sounds like a mind-blowing person with a lot of things to say. So I imagine you saved some questions for our Slate Plus members. You know I did. I asked Val about why or how she has taken part in several projects where contemporary authors write books or stories in the style of other writers. So like she did a version of Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. She contributed a story to a collection of quote-unquote, new Miss Marple stories. So I was just curious why she's drawn to that kind of project. And I also asked her how she thinks about incorporating real-world events into her fictional stories. She's not one of those writers who does it all the time, but she does. So I just kind of wanted to know more about that. That sounds great. And for those of you that are Slate Plus members, make sure you stick around for that conversation at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get exclusive members only segments, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Also, if you become a Slate Plus member, you'll be supporting our work and the work of everyone else at Slate. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now, let's listen in on June's conversation with writer Val McDermott. Val, 
Val McDermott, thanks so much for joining us to talk about your creative process. That's a real pleasure, um, insofar as I have a creative process. <laughs> well, let's find out. So the occasion for our conversation is the release of a new Karen Peary mystery, Past Lying, which is something like your 45th book. There are so many. It was a bit of a challenge for me to count them. The Karen Peary books are one of five series that you've written, I think, one of two active series. And I'm just wondering, when you have multiple series on the go, how do you decide, OK, it's time for a Karen Peary or, all right, Ali Burns, let's go? It tends to start with the story idea. So story ideas will tell you very quickly, will tell me very quickly, whether it's a series novel uh, with existing characters or whether it's something different and I have to write a standalone or start a new series. <laughs> and the best laid plans uh, go out the window when a really good idea comes along. So Past Lying was not the book I intended to write last mm. year, this year. I was going to write the next in the Ali Burns series, so that would have been 1999, mm. following on from 1979 and 1989. But uh, I got to New Zealand last year. I'm a visiting professor at the University of Otago in Dunedin. Uh, Professor of uh, Scottish Studies and Crime Fiction. Wow. And no sooner had I arrived in New Zealand than I had this brilliant idea. It came to me, I mean, uh, it just sort of landed almost fully formed. And that doesn't usually happen. Normally, ideas take a long time to come to fruition. But it was quite clearly uh, a Karen Perry novel because it, it played to all her strengths. And also, it was set in lockdown. I wanted to, to start where the previous novel had finished. Um, so this idea, I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll park that, I'll write 1999 and then come back to that. And it just wouldn't stay parked. <laughs> As we say in Scotland, it was nipping my head. <laughs> it was there in the morning when I woke up and, and every now and again during the day, something would crop up and I'd say, oh yeah, I can use that, can't I? And after a couple of weeks of this, I just thought, I'm just going to give in and write the bloody thing. So <laughs> I did. I mean, I've always written the book that shouted loudest in my head at the time. Huh. And sometimes that's quite convenient and quite neat and follows on from uh, plans, but sometimes it just takes me in a completely different direction. Wow. I have to say, I've been reading your work, you might say, in real time, you know, so as they've been released. And one of the things I've noticed over the years is your commitment to showing a character's development. I mean, you know, it's relatively common in mysteries to have long-running series, but there are a lot of them where the character really doesn't change. And Karen Peary, she's grown, she's gone through a lot of hard stuff over the course of seven years, and uh, as have the surrounding characters. And I'm, I'm curious how you see the challenge of evolving a character who you've been spending more than 20 years with too. Never mind your readers. I imagine you don't want to get bored with her or with any of the others either. Yeah, um, and for me, one of the key things is not writing books back to back with the same character. Huh. I find that really problematic because I get bored. I've got a very low attention span. <laughs> and when I quit the day job and started writing full time, I had just written the first Kate Brannigan novel set in Manchester. And I started writing the second one. And I was about halfway, two-thirds of the way through, and I, I, I was so annoyed with this woman. I thought, you know, she's smarter than me, she's funnier than me, she's thinner than me, you know, <laughs> she's better at computer games than me. Why am I spending time with her? So since then, I've not written books back-to-back -back with the same character, except the Ali Burns series. Oh. But that feels different because there's a gap of 10 mm. years between each book. And mm. in that period, things have happened 
to Ali and, and the people around her to make her look at the world a bit differently or to improve her strength and, and, and work on strengthening her weaknesses. Yeah. But also the stories that, that, that come to me, something intrigues me and I see the potential for a story in it. They're different. They don't all fit neatly into the category of something that could be investigated by a cop, something that would be investigated by a private eye, something that would be investigated by a profiler. So the different sort of story demands a different sort of narrative. And I'm curious, I suppose, as a writer, to imagine the impact of these terrible events on the people who are charged with investigating them. And, yeah. you know, many of the writers whose work I, I really enjoy do just that. I think, I think, for example, Ellie Griffiths with her Ruth Galloway series does that. The characters develop, they reflect on what's happened to them. They're changed by the circumstances that they've yeah. gone through. And... Um, I think that's something that readers like. I mean, I, I like it as a reader mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to be reading yeah. something where people don't just have these things happen and then they just roll seamlessly on as if no no impact's been had. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid reading sort of the famous five, the Enid Blyton stories, and they all take place basically over the same summer. The yeah. sun always <laughs> shines, you know, and nobody ever learns anything. And Georgie never takes, comes out. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's never a moment where they say, perhaps we shouldn't go into that dark cave because the last time we went into a dark cave, something bad happened. So there's no self-awareness in that sense. Yeah. But I also read a series of novels called The Chalet School Books, and they were written over a period of about 50 years um, by an author called Eleanor M. Brent Dyer, and each book covered either a term or a year in the life of the school. And things had consequences. People changed according to what had happened to them. And they took on board the process of growing up, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but if you broke your leg in one book, you'd still be limping three books later. Yeah. And of course, because I was borrowing these books in the library, I was never reading them in sequence. Right, you know, right. Book 27, then book four, and then book 49. Yeah. And those sudden moments of illumination where you'd go, ah, that's why Grizel's like that. Or, oh, that explains why Cornelia Flowers behaves that way. Yeah, yeah. And so as a reader, those were the things that excited me. And so as a writer, that was what I wanted to do. Okay, so let's talk about Past Lying. It is a different book, as you say, a lockdown book. But it's also a very much a meta discussion of crime writing. And I want to talk about that. But let's talk about the lockdown aspect. I know you said that, well... You know, it just came into your head but and you wanted to follow on. But the setting is really quite different. It's Edinburgh, but without anybody in it. It's being a cop, but without going to the station. Yeah, uh, That must yeah. have been different. Yeah, I mean, at one point, somebody says it's like the zombie apocalypse without the zombies. <laughs> yeah. And there were challenges. I mean, I, I spoke to a, a couple of cops about how they policed in lockdown and what the challenges were. And so that, that's something that Karen has to work out as she's going along. And, and sometimes she's maybe a little bit bendy with the rules. But yeah. by and large, she does try to uh, to stick to the rules. Because she says at one point, she says to her colleague, Daisy, uh, who says, nobody would know if you broke the rules. And she said, but I would know, and I'm a polis. Yeah. yeah. I know she's a cop, but she's also very much a, a – she's very obedient. You know, she sticks to the rules. Well, she understands that uh, if you're actually going to – find a way to put people in jail, you need to have a case that will stand up to scrutiny. Mm, and that mm. means not breaking the rules because that yeah. gives the defence a get-out clause. Mm -hmm. So she's quite moral, uh, yeah, Karen. Yeah. 
I mean, she sees what she does as being um, about bringing answers to people who have lost someone from their lives. Mm-hmm. And cold cases is what she specialises in. And so that she feels she feels she owes the dead, if you like. Yeah. There's also a lot of meta-commentary on crime writing, since there are some fictional exponents of tartan noir in the mix. Um, you're one of the writers who I have theories about. So, you know, as I read your book, I think, oh, she wrote this like that because... So since you're here, I'd love to <laughs> test at least one of those theories. And so one is kind of about the Ali Burns series of books, um, where the main characters, for the most part, are journalists rather than cops. And I think you wrote those because, A, you wanted to write about the work of tabloid journalists in the 70s and 80s and, and on into the future. B, maybe you wanted to have a lesbian lead. But C, also, and maybe most importantly, to tamp down the creepy crime level, some of your earlier books, like the Tony Hill, Karen Jordan books, were pretty creepy or, I don't know, I don't know if that's the right word, but kind of a high level of scariness and in... Past lying, one of the pieces of crime writing the cops have to study leaves Karen feeling disgust, which is a word that she used, that crime and depravity have become entertainment. And so I want you to respond to my theory, but I'm just wondering, has your attitude to presenting some of the more disturbing aspects of crime changed over the years? I'm not sure that it has changed, but it's. Um, I've always thought that writing about violence in a very direct kind of way is required by some kind of storytelling. Mm. So the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan books, I'm writing about a profiler and a detective and a profiler who specialises in serial sexual homicide. And I think it's disingenuous to write about that and not confront the reader with the nature of violence, what it is, what it does, the effect it has, and how it has an impact. And in order to do that, you have to basically tell the reader what Tony is seeing yeah. and how he's making his, his deductions. So that does demand a certain uh, intensity in terms of looking into the darkness. Really, it, it is story-driven. And there comes a point also, you know, with, with the Tony and Carol books, where you you can't just keep doing these hideous things to your characters yeah. because it yeah. no longer becomes credible that they're capable of, mm-hmm. of doing these things. You know, I mean, I, I like to think of Tony and Carol now, you know, recovering <laughs> in, the, in living at the opposite ends of Carol's barn in West Yorkshire, taking the dog for walks and healing after yeah, all yeah. these these years of, of terrible, terrible experiences. Um, so for me, it's the nature of the stories I want to tell that dictates how dark and how directly I, I will deal with violence on the page. Uh, with the Ali Burns novels, I wanted to, I suppose, write a, write a series of novels. I mean, I'm planning a quintet that will go from uh, 1979 to 2019. And I want it to reflect the changing nature of how crime is investigated, but also the, the changing nature of, of, of social systems, about yeah. how our media has changed, how we consume yeah. media has changed, how we react to these kind of things. I mean, you know, 1979, true crime was like nothing. There was, there was no... You had in cold blood, and that was about it. <laughs> but now you have this huge burgeoning industry of podcasts and TV shows about real cases, and that begs different questions of us. Mm-hmm. So for me, the idea of writing the quintet was to, I suppose, use uh, my my years of working with words, both as a journalist and as as a novelist, mm. and and also it's 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 a very good way of sidestepping a memoir. 
<laughs> oh, but now you've just invited so many. So is that? Who's? Yes, okay. No, um, it's, it's, it's not autofiction. It's not autobiographical, but I've used quite a lot of my own anecdotage, but I've also stolen the anecdotage of friends. <laughs> but I wanted to, various people have said to me, my publishers persistently, that I should write a memoir. And I don't really want to sit about gazing at my navel for a couple of years. I've got I've got stories I want to tell, and they're not particularly my story. I think I'm yeah. quite dull, really. So I thought if, if I use the material that I would have used in a memoir, uh, apart from anything else, I don't have to wait for people to die before I can write about them. <laughs> and also, it, it gives me it gives me that chance to talk about the changing nature of the world of of, of words. And Ali isn't going to be an, a, a journalist all the way through this series. She's going to move into different areas of writing. She's not going to be a crime writer, but she's <laughs> going to be doing different kinds of things uh, in terms of, of journalism and news and, and non-fiction. Interesting. We'll be right back with more of June's conversation with Val McDermott. the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we wrestle with creative challenges and try to provide our best solutions. So, what are your creative challenges? Let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304 933 work. W-O-R-K. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now, 
Let's get back to June's conversation with Val McDermott. So in Passelying, uh, as I say, it's, there's metafiction because the case involves kind of unraveling something that involves two mystery novelists. Uh, in the book Within a Book, we see a crime writer figuring out their plot and the outline contains a few parentheses that more or less say, work this out. Uh, and I... I wondered if that was your method. Um, do you sketch out the broad strokes, then fill in the twiddly bits? or I usually work out the twiddly bits as I go along, but I, I don't always know what the twiddly bits are before I start. Mm. Um, in the days when I used to plot out much more, in a much more detailed way than I do now, there would, all, there would be invariably a file card that would say, something has to happen here, but I'm not sure what it is, but I'll know when I get there. <laughs> and do you always know when you get there? Pretty much, yeah. Um, uh-huh. I've been doing this a long time now. You know, Past Lying is my 39th novel. And so I think I have certain habits of thought uh-huh. that help me solve problems. And one of my habits of thought, if you like, is that if I'm coming up to a complicated scene and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to negotiate it, or I'm trying to uh, find the next step in the journey, then I will rehearse the problem when I'm going to sleep, uh-huh. uh, when I go to bed. Uh-huh. And nine times out of ten, I get the answer in the morning when I'm in the shower. Wow. So the subconscious does its work. If you set it a problem and, and, and set its parameters, then it will do a, a, a better job than chat GPT, I suspect. <laughs> well, um, you, you talked about your habits of thought. Having written 39 novels... Are there any things that you've kind of recognised that you do repeatedly that you're like, I can't do that? Not really, I don't think. I think I've got a fairly comprehensive notion of the tricks I've played before and the things I've done (laughs) before and the places I've gone before. And uh, try not to repeat myself. And, I mean, inevitably there will be bits that that creep through. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the problems I had with the Kate Brannigan series was after six novels, I couldn't think of a fresh way to describe the living arrangements of Kate and her boyfriend, you know, because they they live in bungalows next door to each other with a conservatory along the back that links them. But after you've found six different ways to express that, you start to think, I can't bother with this anymore. (laughs) And that's why we don't have any more Kate (laughs) Brannigans. That's why we don't have any more Kate Brannigans, mostly. Um, (laughs) So, yeah... You do you do have to sort of give some thought to what you've done before because uh, murder, like love, as Joni Mitchell says, love is a repetitious danger, and so is murder. Uh huh. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, as you're speaking, it strikes me like it's just such a a quantity of plots and ideas and characters. You know, ideas are everywhere, though. You know, you know, I'm always stumbling over ideas. You know, things things occur to me. I think, well, that's really interesting. Maybe I could do something with that. It's it's always finding the time to develop them into something. You know, a book takes takes. Well, I mean, I, I write a novel a year basically, mm. so mm. there's a lot of ideas going to waste <laughs> as well. You know, it's a lot of things I think that'd be really interesting. Maybe I could do something with that, and then I get distracted and then I forget about it. And I'll find a, a, a note sort of three years later that says something about Brian Post Office safe, <laughs> and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> People say, where do you get your ideas from? And I mean, it seems to me to be the most absurd of questions because (laughs) 
ideas are everywhere. You pick up a newspaper, you read a newspaper. It's not the big stories. It's not the, mm-hmm. the big stories about the war in Gaza. It's not the stories about what Donald Trump's been up to. But it's those little three-paragraph throwaways that make you go, what? <laughs> I can't believe that. Or how did how on earth did people get into that situation? Yeah. It's those yeah. little stories, and, and often local paper stories as well, where odd things happen that set the wheels turning. And often take you very far away from where you started. Yeah. Uh, or I'm, else somebody tells you a story at a dinner party and you think, that's really interesting, but what if that had happened instead of this? What yeah. if they believed him instead of her? Yeah. So in Past Lying, uh, perhaps it's because this is the first Karen Peary novel that's come out since I moved here, but it sure felt like there were more Scots words in this one than in most of your books. I'm going to recite all the ones that I counted and you'll probably, I'm not going to look at you because you'll probably be wincing at my pronunciation, but Venel, Chukter, Huckled, Blether, Scunner, Shugly, Stushy, The Jaggy Bunnet, Gallus, Skelp, Dwam, Rami, Bubbly Jock, Scumbled, Riddy, But and Ben. Now, I knew some <laughs> of those words, but by no yeah. means all of them. Yeah. Don't you worry that non-Scots will be left puzzled by those words? Why? Why do you? Why do those appear? I, well, I try to contextualise them, yeah. so mostly yeah. you can get the sense of them. And yeah. they, they appear because the characters speak Scots, <laughs> because we use these words. Um, <laughs> and you know, one or two of them are slightly obscure. I mean, the jaggy bonnet is, um, you know, I, I've never, I've never been quite sure where that expression comes from. You know, you will get the jaggy bonnet; it, it, it means a, a spiky hat. Uh-huh, I don't quite yes. know. It's it's about authenticity, I suppose, but mm-hmm. not not putting them in just to confuse people. Is it your sense though that you did more this time? Not consciously. I think if a book is set in Scotland, then I will have there will be Scots dialect words in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have to say, that one one of my standalones, the the killing the shadows, uh, begins the har rolled in from the fourth. Now, the har is a, is a East Coast Scotland word for sea, sea fret, a sea mist. Mm, and mm. That, that, that was fine until I heard the, um, I'm afraid, the, the American audiobook, which began, the hair rolled in from the fourth. <laughs> Didn't quite have the same impact. <laughs> so you, know, you have to be a little bit careful sometimes, baby. I have to tell you, you made some of them up though, right? I mean, I didn't come up the fourth on a biscuit. I looked that up. Biscuit no. was not in the Scots Dictionary. I mean, I know what a biscuit is, but yeah. you're, you're inventing some. I mean, Well, it's, uh, there's a phrase that didn't come up the Clyde on a bike. Uh, but when I right. worked in Glasgow, that would extend to, I didn't come up the Clyde on a biscuit. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. Same sense of, you know, that's not going to be a very good way of, of negotiating a waterway. <laughs> uh, noted. Um you are someone who at least appears from the outside to be quite active in the mystery writing and writing community. You take part in a lot of events. You're on the telly a lot. Uh, you're the vocalist in a group called the Fun-Loving Crime Writers. I thought writers were supposed to be introverts. Well, I, mean, I, I do spend about half my life in a room staring at a screen. You know, I spend quite oh, a lot are? of time... On my own, you know, um, and I, they just let me get let me out to play, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, the band has been an, an, an enormous fun thing to be doing. It's great, you know. I'm in a band with five guys who are crime writers. We're all having a midlife crisis. <laughs> um, we sing songs about crime and murder, and we're we're actually pretty good. I mean, we've played Glastonbury. 
Ah, oh, I see. We celebrated our 40th gig this summer. Wow. We mostly do book festivals as, as sort of, you know, an add-on, you know. Yeah. We're quite good value for money because you get you get six authors and, and as well as the band. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's, that's just great fun, really. I mean, um, I've, I've been involved in, in the setting up of festivals over the years. I mean, I was uh, I was one of the founders of the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival, the Deep mm-hmm. Soul Peculiar Crime Writing Festival, which celebrated its 20th anniversary this year. You know, I've been involved in other festivals too, and and I, I enjoy that sort of aspect of, of actually getting out and meeting other writers, not just at the crime festivals, but, you know, that I'm just back from a, a week on board ship with the Cheltenham Lit Fest at sea. Whoa. They've started doing this, and this is the third time they've done it, so they take a bunch of writers of fiction, non-fiction, uh, journalists and comedians Whoa. on the, the, the Queen Mary 2 across Whoa. the Atlantic. <laughs> And we do we do a sort of program every day of, of gigs and events. It's, it was actually it was great company, um, and lots of books were bought. You know, so it's amazing. Uh, you know, I, I spoke with Ellen Hart, who actually told me if I ever ran into oh. you on the streets of Edinburgh that I that I should say hello from her. But um, oh, I love Ellen. Ellen's yeah. just an absolute darling. Yeah, and a really smart writer as well. Yeah, well, one of the things you know, I I knew her from way back. Uh, because I st- I worked at Seal Press when her first book came right. out, and she, I know that she's a shy person, but she also does quite a lot of event. You know, she would be at the crime writing things, and you know, she does that thing. But she said, "That's Ellen. Ellen's not her birth name, as it were." And like no, that no, person, yeah. yeah, you know, Pat is a quiet person. Pat's but a quiet Ellen, person. Ellen's but not. Ellen's yeah. out there, and I wonder, like, yeah. is do you see things that way? Are, is your writer personality? the same as your publicity personality or is it all just you and, and you don't have that issue? I think there are um, there are bits of my life that I work very hard to keep private. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm candid, I'm open, I'm out there, but not everything. Mm. Because mm. you need a private space. You need a space that the world doesn't intrude on. Because every now and again, the sky falls in and you need that place of safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I worry sometimes when I see particularly younger writers starting out with, with the social media just putting it all out there. You know, they're telling you about their life, their partners, their kids, their dogs. And it makes me slightly anxious because at some point, you know, we all have those moments where the wheels come off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you need to have uh, an area that is your own area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find, you know, I enjoy doing events, I enjoy doing festivals. But also I get to the point of thinking, I've had enough of people now, thank you very much. I need to go and sit in a cupboard. Then you get to write another book, right? Yeah, well, when we went to Spain, my partner uh, my partner is the, the geographer royal of Scotland. Uh-huh. And she's got a project in mind that she's been thinking about for some years. And she finally got to the point where she thought she could start to write it, make a big dent in it. And I had this, this novella to write. Mm-hmm. So off we went to Spain and, and basically spent a month in, in an apartment. Um, <laughs> You know, on the terrace, walking on yeah. the beach nearby. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I mean, we didn't go and do touristy things at all. We just went and worked. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was that was great because there was no outside interference, and mm-hmm. you know, I could just say, no, I can't come on the Today program tomorrow morning because I'm in Spain. Yeah, you know, and and it's, so it's 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 
you have to carve out chunks of private space. So yeah. I, I tend to, to write my books in the first part of the year um, because the weather's shite and you don't want to go outside. <laughs> it's so dark um, too, it's already dark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, that's the time I stay at home and write and don't do many festivals. So frankly, there aren't that many festivals in the dead of winter. Right, so, right. you know, there are times to be restrictive and times to be out there in public. Yeah. yeah. You are known in Britain as the Queen of Crime, uh, but I believe the Agatha Christie estate issued a cease and desist notice last year about the use of that phrase. Um, I don't know if it was you or our friends that suggested quine of crime, a Scottish yeah. term. I mean, it's kind of a laugh, but it's also disappointing to hear stories like that. I mean, how did you feel when you got that letter? I thought it was absurd. I thought the I thought it made the Christie estate look very stupid. Yeah. And very petty. And to trademark the expression Queen of Crime in relation to Agatha Christie is a misnomer anyway, because she was one of the four queens of crime in the golden age. Mm. Um I will say in my defence that I never called myself the Queen of Crime and my publishers yeah. never called me the Queen of Crime. This is what's said by reviewers and, and interviewers on stage. And, you know, I'm happy to take it, you know. But, yes, I now have uh, T-shirts that say Val McDermott, Queen of Crime. As it's a Scottish word. It's, it means it means a woman between the points of, of puberty and, and what we call crone. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm taking that. Uh, right on. I'll be the Queen of Crime. <laughs> in, in fairness awesome. to the Christie estate, they did back down when they, they saw that they were getting the piss ripped out of them so much. Good, yeah, good to see Val McDermott, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing some really interesting insights into your creative process. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Coming up next, June and I will talk about how to not overthink fiction versus nonfiction processes and the secret lives of writers. June, I'm plagued with a thing and I think you're the perfect person <laughs> to ask this question. So as a journalist and a writer yourself, I really love that you were the one having this conversation with Val because I just need you. I need you in my <laughs> life. I got so nervous when you guys were talking about ideas and overthinking and I get paralyzed by the plethora of ideas <laughs> and the possibility. This is the worst one. The possibility of the ideas being wasted. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So with something yeah. as open-ended as a blank page... Like, how do you overcome that and pick which direction to go? And then how do you course correct when a better idea comes your way? Oh, that really is the big question. I mean, Val made it seem so easy, but of course it is easy for her. She's written 35 mysteries. She's written 45 books in total, maybe more. So sure, she feels confident about managing ideas. She's a really mature writer who is very comfortable with her processes. But I think it's the biggest challenge when you're still finding your feet. So a few thoughts. First, I do think it's really important to keep track of your ideas. In March of 2023, Isaac and I did an episode of Working Overtime on this topic. It's called, Is It Really Possible to Build Up Your Idea Muscle? And I'm not sure if we really came to a definite conclusion, but I think when you feel that you need to work on idea generation or you just kind of feel a little bit overwhelmed like you were talking about, I think it's a really good idea to just set yourself a target. You know, you just say, 
every day I'll write down one story ideas or 10 story ideas or every day I'll come up with a topic for a blog post. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's just set a goal and just do it and do it for a month. If you feel it's been useful, then carry on. And if it wasn't, you know, you don't have to do it forever. Try something else. Second, I really do think it's important to try to introduce a bit of focus, you know, when the blank page or (laughs) you can write about anything. It's like in college. The more guidance you have about the topic of a paper, the easier it is to write it. So don't just be looking for generic ideas. Mm. Try to introduce a few limits. You know, that could be I'm going to generate ideas that would make for good mystery novels or short stories. I'm going to generate ideas that would make good episodes of, you know, whatever your favorite podcast is. Be specific. But then, however you generate those ideas, let them marinate a bit. Because mm. you also asked, how do you course correct when a better idea comes your way? And th- that, yeah. I think you can keep iterating until you sell your idea. You know, okay. you can chop and change when you're working on a book proposal. But once it's sold, you pretty much have to stick with it. If you're yeah. pitching a podcast, you can keep tweaking the formula all you want until somebody like gives you the green light, at which point you kind of can't change too much without talking to the people you're working with. So ultimately, though, I think at some point you just have to trust your own brain. If the ideas are good, they'll keep resurfacing. So don't worry about losing them. Just worry about getting into the habit of generating them. Okay. So are you even more overwhelmed now? <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely the taking like it's like taking small bites every day. So that yes, yes. I can do. Um, <laughs> the, the commitment phobe in me is, is like... I have to, you know, once I sell the story, I have to commit. So I'm like, how <laughs> I want to drag out that middle part <laughs> yeah, so that I can keep changing the idea. But it's exciting either way. Yeah, you can tell a different story every day. That's fine. Yeah. So you know what else y'all like talked about that like got me excited? It was kind of like these different hacks that Val mm. talked about. Mm. with the different ways that she writes um, and how to keep stories and characters fresh. So you deal in research, history, and nonfiction, especially with your upcoming book about the history of queer women's spaces. So since you can't change history, how do you keep the momentum going for yourself? Like, how do you find the angles that make history fresh for the reader? I think you hit the nail on the head when you said keep the momentum going for yourself. Because I know everything that I write, there always seems to be a bit, it could be a paragraph, could be a whole section. Whereas you're reading it through you kind of feel yourself checking out, you know, mm. you suddenly start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. Yeah. And if that happens in the same place more than once where you just kind of feel your eyes gliding over the words, you need to spend some time on that section. If it's boring you, which is how I kind of interpret that <laughs> response, there's a pretty good chance it'll bore your readers. Um, so you kind of ask yourself, is it the way it's written? Mm. How relevant is that idea? Just pay attention to your own response. And I have to say, in most cases, in my experience, that section just needs to go. Maybe it's boring you because it just really doesn't belong there. Even when it feels so precious, though, like sometimes it'll be boring to me. And I know it like just from like when we do podcasting and stuff Mm -hmm. and I get so attached and I I feel it's so precious. And I know I'm I'm also dying inside while I'm listening. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know what? I think more with words than with podcasts, you can save it. Like, Mm. I know I've worked on segments and I've at some point, something in the back of my head has told me this is never going to make it to the book. But 
it might make it somewhere else. It might make a good newsletter. It yeah. might make, you know, a blog post. It might make a tweet, whatever it is. You know, nothing's really wasted. You also, you know, figured something out. I think it is a little bit harder with podcasts because it's all in those words and, and just, you know, yeah. the, maybe it went wrong because of the scoring. I don't know. I think it's a little harder, but I think generally you've learned from that. So, you know, it, you can let go. Yeah. But I also want to talk about what you said, the angles, you know, because mm. you do have to go digging. You have to find the good stuff. You have to find the interesting bits. Yeah. I have to tell you, I just read an absolutely devastating review of a new biography of Ella Fitzgerald in the New York Times, which basically said that the author didn't include, I don't know if, if he said any, but many of the those kind of delightful details. And then most devastatingly, the reviewer just kind of went to Google and found a few such, oh. you know, great nuggets. And it was just like, yeah, okay. I haven't read that book yet, but you know what? I have a feeling, yeah, the author missed him. So you have to research, but you have to have a sense for those bits that are going to make readers or listeners, whatever it is you're making, go, ooh, you know, those things that yeah. keep them reading or listening. I think anyone who's done an interview or edited an interview, they know, you know, when those little sparkly moments happen, when the person you're talking to says something that you just know is going to be at the heart of your piece or the audio feature. So you really do have to be able to identify those moments. And then, as I was reminded by that book review, you have to use them. Yeah. Don't find it and then like, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't fit. Make it fit. That's a good stuff. Good for Ella Fitzgerald. Okay, now what I was saying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Aww. exactly. Yeah, I know. So you also explore with Val, the idea of story fitting neatly. Mm -hmm. And she's a prolific crime writer and, and she has to make sure the twist and turns and ultimately the ending is realistic and satisfying. Mm -hmm. How does that work for you? How does the idea of story fitting neatly work for nonfiction? Well, you definitely still need dramatic tension in nonfiction writing. You have to, you know, propel the reader through the text, structure it so they just want to keep turning pages. You have to build up the stakes, you know, to give one mm. example from my book. Why was it risky for women to go to lesbian bars? And then what made them face those risks? What did they get when they put their jobs or their homes or their families on the line? What was so irresistible? You know, those kinds of things provide the kind of satisfaction that readers crave. Mm. But I think in, in nonfiction, neatness is a little bit overrated. In a mystery novel, you absolutely want to know who done it and it's <laughs> got to be clear. Like, I, don't mess around with me. I, I don't want to know, Mel, it might have been her, it might have been her, no. But in nonfiction, sometimes the complexity is what provides satisfaction. You know, you want to say, I'm not bullshitting you. This is complicated. Yeah. And, you know, if you can kind of express the competing motivations, how different people see things, because we know two people can have the same experience and remember it or experience it even very differently. So yeah. I think in nonfiction, it's sometimes more accurate and more thought provoking to just be not quite as neat. And like you said, with the complications, like mm -hmm. I think about world history and the angles we've been taught, the angles mm -hmm. that are being taught to other people. And I'm like, yeah. it's complicated. It's this is yeah. our truth. This is their yeah. truth. And yeah, then exactly. there's the truth that exists that no one wrote, wrote about because they were yeah. busy living it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe, you know, 
maybe there's a little bit of truth in every one of those truths. And, and it's not always easy to yeah. figure it out or we all figure it out differently. But yeah, they're all, they're all relevant somehow. Oof. Now, I, I got to know, what is the secret life of June Thomas. Oh are God. you in a band too? Do you do <laughs> slam poetry? What are your non-writing activities that like get your juices flowing? Oh, TK, I wish <laughs> I were that cool. Oh my God. That idea of me in a band, me doing slam poetry. Yeah. I am like on the couch at about eight o'clock every night, just like watching YouTube. I, I wish I were doing slam poetry. Um, as far as getting the creative juices flowing, you know, I guess the, the usual things, you know, reading, listening to radio plays and podcasts, talking with people, talking with people, mm -hmm. which I don't do enough. That's really important. But for relaxation, I love to play with my stationery. Oh, <laughs> I, I love that. I, I think everybody has something they just can't resist. And if I have any money at all, yeah. I cannot resist buying stationery, you know, out of pens, notebooks, washi tape, whatever. And I play with them, you know, and, and I hear yeah. like the childlike echoes of playing with my toys. But that really is how it feels to me. You know, I, I really enjoy I get a lot of pleasure out of making notebooks, writing in those notebooks, drawing in them, decorating them, making zines. That's really relaxing for me. It's something I usually do when I'm watching TV in the evening. And it is fun, but it also, I think, really helps me to switch from work mode to leisure mode, which yeah. when you're working from home, that can be, you know, a little bit difficult. Yeah. And it's nice to have something that just is fun. It's like you give yourself a third place in your mind. Yeah. And you yeah. go there. Yeah. yeah. If we really only have one place. Yeah. Let's give ourselves a third place. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And uh, I look forward to anything you write me on a piece of stationery <laughs> with an amazing stamp. If you know, you know. <laughs> All right, y'all, that is all the time we have for today's show. And before we go, just one more reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get to hear all of our episodes ad-free. You'll also get to hear exclusive segments on our show and a lot of other Slate podcasts. And you'll get to hear entire bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn. And of course, you'll get full access to all the articles on Slate.com. You can sign up today at Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thank you to Val McDermott for being our guest this week. And thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews. If it sounds this good, the answer to who done it is always Cameron. We'll be back next week with Isaac's conversation with actor, writer and director Eric Jensen. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>